At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. I'm Laura Youngkin of The Brave Millennial. This is Lars Helgeson, CEO of Greenrope and author of CRM for Dummies. I'm Allison Bloom-Festock, the founder and CEO of Know Your Crew. This is Brad Van Dam, president and CEO of Mari Confectionery. And you're listening to High Level Wisdom for New Generation Leaders. Are you looking for a way to bring together your executive team along with your emerging leadership in a more creative and fun way? Look no further than the High Level Wisdom One Day Workshop. Here, we make sure that we bring not only your executives and emerging leadership together, but we do it in such a way that helps you talk about succession planning, differences in communication, and much, much more. Let's have a conversation. Feel free to reach out to me, chris at highlevelwisdom.com by email, and I will work with you in a free 20-minute consultation in order to be able to share more about your company and learn how we can help you. Look forward to talking to you soon. When it comes to truly marketing technology, that can be difficult as a CEO, as you know. When it comes to marketing about your new technology, it can be difficult, as you much know. Well, what if I could tell you that you could bring both groups together in your company and not only work on the present, but have space and room to breathe to work on fortunate discoveries for the future? Doesn't that sound great? Well, how about you insert Serendipity Interactive? It is a top company that will help you today pull together the things that you need, make the fortunate discoveries that are important to you and build out where you want to go so that you are producing high quality products that are great for your customer. Go to www.serendipityinteractive.com. That's serendipityinteractive.com and tell them Chris from High Level Wisdom sent you. Hey, do you know of other CEOs who might be a good fit in a spot on our show? Do you know of a CEO and you say, man, I think he would love to be able to talk about and engage in this space of dealing with younger millennials and how to bring them up the right way inside of our company? Well, we're looking for other opportunities to talk with CEOs. If you know of someone, feel free to send me an email, chris at highlevelwisdom.com and let's have a conversation. Now, let's listen to this week's episode. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode, another exciting episode of our podcast. Listen, if you had an opportunity, please go back right now. Listen to last week's episode. It was great being able to hear from Avidis, listening about what they do as a company. It was exciting. But this week, this is bonus material. I wish I had like a loud siren to really wake you guys up because this week is going to be incredible. The reason is, is because I was able to pull somebody who not only has a very interesting perspective about 
about the world of business, uh, who's done a lot uh, in very short order. But more importantly, the perspective that this gentleman has is going to be uh, something to be remembered. And I am sure that you are going to uh, replay this episode several times over this week. So let me tell you a little bit about this gentleman. Uh, he's a former partner at a $2 billion uh, venture capital firm. He's the former presidential innovation fellow at the White House. He's also done a couple of smaller things like work at Google, Facebook and Harvard's Berkman Center for Internet and Society. Uh, he just recently published a book that we are going to not only deep dive into because I think it's very important for the conversation we have on this show, but he was also just a fascinating character when I got an opportunity to talk to him. He wrote this book called The Fuzzy and the Techie. Why the Liberal Arts Will Rule the Digital World. Now, this is a part of bonus content. Now, I do a lot of interviews and I know uh, you guys get a chance to hear from CEOs and people I talk to all the time. But a lot of times I like to find people who will give us perspective from a different part of of the lens. And so I'm talking about none other than the fuzzy and the techie guru himself, Scott Hartley. So this interview is um, one that you really want to make sure that you write things down, that you stop, make sure you know where things are. Go look at the show notes. This is going to be one of those episodes that you want to pay attention to. So without further ado, because I'm I'm really excited for you to be able to hear this, I'm going to continue to listen to this as well. But here is my interview with Scott Hartley, the author of The Fuzzy and the Techie, Why the Liberal Arts Will Rule the Digital World. Take a listen. Hartley, Scott, how are you today? Hey, Chris. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm good. I'm good. I'm, uh, I'm based in Brooklyn, New York, and we're on the summer solstice, so I can't complain. <laughs> Absolutely. I can imagine because, uh, it, you know, here in, in in North Carolina, it has definitely been summer for quite some time. So uh, <laughs> I'm sure to get some warm weather in New York is, is not a bad thing. Well, well, listen, I'm excited that you're on the show today because there's so much that we can talk about here. And I, I want to give our audience an opportunity to hear from you. Share with our audience a little bit about your background. And from what I understand, you are not just a, I moved to Silicon Valley, but you are Silicon Valley born and bred, and you have a very interesting journey that kind of led you to this process of understanding, you know, the fuzzy people. And I, I want you to kind of explain how, where you came from with that and what that means, but share with our audience your journey and how did you get to this understanding that, that kind of helped you write this book? Sure. Um, yeah. So as, as you mentioned, um, Sort of one of the one of the very few people I think that sort of has stuck around the, the hoop in Silicon Valley that was from there from the you know not from the very beginning but from the, the early 90s when my family moved there um, sort of at the outset of, of sort of the, the tech boom and then the tech bust and you know sort of the resurgence that's happened thereafter um, so I really had the fortune of, of kind of growing up in the eye of the storm in some ways um, but like you said um, you know I, I I understood technology sort of. Uh, Usefulness, and I and I saw it. I saw it around my life. But you know, as a kid, I I, I grew up um, you know playing soccer and, and and sort of doing the typical things that a that a high schooler does. Um, you know, I had a lot of different interests uh, across the board. Um, one of my key interests was sort of getting this sort of classical education. And so when I went to college, I I tried to replicate a classical education in taking you know so ancient Greek and ancient. Uh, 
sort of Roman history and, and taking ancient and medieval and, and modern political theory and taking French and Spanish and, and some different languages. So I definitely had um, sort of a perspective of trying to get a holistic education. Um, but at the same time, I always had this appreciation for entrepreneurship and appreciation for, for technology, I think partially from, from growing up in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley and, you know, being part of this world um, that, that, that we've all sort of come to know really intimately now. Um, and so I, I always sort of self-identified in these terms that um, at Stanford University, they're called, uh, you know, the fuzzy and the techie. These terms actually go back to the 1970s or so on campus. And they were just these lighthearted kind of associations where people would ask, you know, are you taking more fuzzy classes or are you taking more techie classes? Obviously, uh, techie, you know, we can sort of self-define as, uh, you know, computer science, electrical engineering, um, sort of mechanical engineering, some of the things that are quote-unquote, you know, the hard sciences. Um, and then the fuzzy, uh, fuzzy subjects were more like arts and humanities and social sciences. Um, but really, you know, it was this kind of false uh, opposition because when you look behind the curtain or, you know, under the hood, you find that if you're taking economics class, you know, that would be deemed fuzzy, sort of fuzzy techie at Stanford. Um, you know, you're taking political science, which is definitely, quote-unquote, you know, a fuzzy subject. You know, you're dealing with uh, game theory, you're dealing with statistical software, you're dealing with independent and dependent variables, trying to tease out what things are having an impact on, on, a, certain, on a certain variable. Um, you know, so they were, there were elements of, of, of a lot of rigor, and even in these quote-unquote fuzzy subjects. And then you kind of flip over to the other side, and, you know, maybe you're taking mechanical engineering or, or electrical engineering, but you're required to take classes in design thinking. You're required to think about um, anthropological research in the form of user experience research. So actually, you know, the, the fuzzy subjects weren't so, so easy and the techie subjects, uh, you know, weren't so hard. They were, you know, there were elements of both, um, you know, both, uh, both aspects on both sides of that spectrum. And so for me, you know, I, I really saw this sort of false, false opposition and false narrative that it was one versus the other, that we couldn't do one thing without the other, um, or we couldn't do one thing or the other. And in actuality, I think, you know, the innovation that I, that I saw, you know, sort of fast forwarding, you know, post-college, post uh, I went to work at Google, and I spent three years at, at Google, and, uh, you know, and then, I, and then I spent some time at Facebook, and then I ended up in a role in venture capital where basically your job is to work with various different entrepreneurs um, to represent a fund, and so you're making sort of investment decisions along with a bunch of partners at your fund uh, around where you think innovation is going. And so you're meeting with lots of interesting people, people with different ideas, uh, where they think the world is moving, um, building technology, and then you sort of evaluate where you believe, you know, the, the market to be going. And if you believe the entrepreneur and their passion and their, you know, their product, um, then maybe as a team you, you make a small investment in that startup. And, uh, you know, so through that process, I actually realized that so many of the interesting companies we were meeting with were the ones that were founded by people that weren't just deeply technical, but they were people that were applying technology really meaningfully to a problem that they were passionate about. So it was much more about this, uh, the passion, much more about sort of their sort of uh, methodological background and training and industry that they understood, not so much that they just had pure coding skills. And so it wasn't always you know, the, the Uber uh, MIT engineer that was getting funded, it was um, the person that came out of a background in, in, in local government and the person who came out of fashion or finance uh, who had studied sociology or had studied economics um, and just really had this sort of passion for, 
unfold, you know, unfurling a problem and, and had the charisma to build a big team around them. And, uh, and so, so that was sort of the observation that I had and the reason uh, for writing the book. Now, that is a very fascinating perspective because if we're honest, I mean, anytime you hear the accolades of most people at the helm of a company, right, you hear all of the techie stats, right? You kind of hear everything that, that they've been a part of um, that is more techie than, than fuzzy, uh, to use the terms of the book. <clears throat> so so I, what I'm interested in, Scott, is let's kind of start from the, the millennial side of this discussion. Because I'm sure right now, if if anyone in the audience is listening as a millennial, their ears are perking up because they're going, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that there is a way to, you know, maybe pursue, you know, some some real passions and not have to be that, you know, you know, masters in, in, in scientific data before I can actually see myself at, at, at the helm. So I guess where do you see. Uh, millennials being a part of kind of this uh, resurgence, I would even say, or groundbreaking of these stereotypes when it comes to fuzzy and techie people leading uh, companies. Why do you think millennials kind of uh, either uh, are are in a good position to, to 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 break through that barrier, or what things do you think that you've seen uh, throughout all the pitches? I'm sure that you've seen from different companies and all of the the ideas that you saw in, during your times in that venture capital firm. What kind of things do you think that millennials are bringing to the table that make more credence to this this cause of fuzzy and techie? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, and I think it's you know it's one that that's that's uh, that's out there in in the world that I think we're all trying to, to answer in some way. But I I think you know I'll tell you a story, and it's it's a great story about a a guy who dropped out of a political science program. He he wanted to learn to code. Um, he decided to build a platform to help himself learn to code, but then also teach other people. Um, and this guy's name was Zach Sims. Um, he founded a company called Codecademy. Uh, and when Zach was building Codecademy, he actually went to, you know, these, uh, these people that you would expect to have all the right skills, all the right accolades. You know, he went to some of the top universities in the U.S., and he went to people who had studied computer science, who had a slip of paper that, you know, should say that they are, you know, completely relevant for all things in the future. And the reality was that um, these people didn't have actually the requisite skills uh, to code in the languages that Zach needed to build Codecademy as a web app. Wow. And so it was a fascinating uh, proof of market. You know, really, it was a, a proof of uh, product market fit, if you will, because, you know, here Zach is trying to, to build a platform to teach people these, up, you know, to upskill into these new languages, which are always a moving target. And he found that, you know, the people he was trying to hire had this great theoretical understanding of, of C++ and, you know, C computer science um, in theory, but sort of through the, the process of learning um, CS in these university contexts, they actually didn't have the most relevant up-to-date uh, language ability. So I think the reality is that these are moving targets, whether, you know, this year it's Ruby on Rails and next year it's, it's a language called Go or, you know, it's, it's a moving... Uh, it's, a, it's an evolving world on the technical side. And so I think what's more important for millennials to consider, and, you know, I'm, I'm myself a millennial, um, is uh, to think about, you know, 
stay true to what you're passionate about. Stay true to your skills and what you're good at, um, but become technical enough to be dangerous. You know, learn, learn to talk the talk. Learn sort of what the building blocks are. Because these building blocks are going to change, you don't need to know every sort of inside and out nuance of how to code in a particular language, but it does help, you know, if you kind of know, okay, this is what the front end is or the back end, or, you know, thinking about, quote unquote, what a full stack developer does, um, there's a great line in the book that, that, I, um, that I pulled from a, a great TechCrunch article a few years ago that's called a full stack integrator. And I love this term, you know, being a full stack integrator rather than a full stack developer because I think increasingly we need to know where these building blocks are. But the chunks are getting larger and larger and it's more about being able to assemble them in meaningful ways. So I think if you can um, even take, you know, uh, some basic sort of General Assembly classes or Codecademy or Treehouse or any of these, you know, wonderful online uh, curricula that, that provide sort of a basic overview, but they, they, don't, um, they don't require full mastery of becoming, you know, a computer science engineer. But those are the things where if you have that plus you're a you know, philosophy major, plus, you know, you're a sociologist, plus you're an anthropologist, then you've got this really incredible skill set of kind of being fuzzy and techy. And that's sort of, you know, the capstone of the book is it's not about being one or the other, but if you can really kind of blend these skills um, and you're, you know, passionate about philosophy and you really understand sort of inquiry and, and you're, you're very curious to kind of get to the core of an idea or the truth of an idea, um, that philosophy background is actually very similar to what you do as a product manager. Now, if you don't have any technical ability, you know, it's difficult to become a product manager straight off the bat. Sure. Um, but you can become a little bit dangerous and you can sort of be able to talk the talk and then you've got this curiosity, this, this inquiry, this ability to sort of mastery of language and, and communicate your ideas and, and manage people well. Um, these are all skills that you know, are incredibly relevant. And so I think it's about, you know, upskilling in the right ways um, and, and staying confident and true to, you know, what you really love. And if you're not, you know, if you're not sleeping and dreaming in ones and zeros and, you know, wanting every moment of your day to, to, to learn, you know, the, the ins and outs of the latest coding language, um, don't feel like you have to. You know, you feel like you, you need to learn enough to be dangerous and sort of know where the big building blocks are. But that's, um, that's in some ways uh, sufficient. Absolutely. So I'm curious, um, a layer deeper to that. <clears throat> I'm curious about your ideas around, okay, if I don't have to be uh, into the binary and if I don't have to be in, into those things, how do, how do, you know, as a, as a, as a fuzzy person, let's use that language as a fuzzy person, then how do I communicate the value that I could bring if I am trying to continue to grow inside of my career, you know, if I'm between 25 to 35, I'm a, I'm a fuzzy. I may know a little, I know enough to, to be able to speak the techie language, but I know that's not my path, but I also know I want to be at the helm. I want to be in leadership position. And and when I look in front of me with the leadership tier, they're all techie people. So uh, just give a little bit of insight of what are some ways that, you know, a, a, a person growing in their career can actually communicate to, to, to their leadership tier that, Hey, I am, I am just as valuable from my perspective as the other, you know, technical folks sitting at that space. Yeah. So, I mean, the first, I mean, the first thing that I would push back on is that everyone at the helm of, of these companies 
is uh, is technical because the first I mean the first sort of truth that I think I or the first myth that I wanted to bust in the in the book was really the reality that uh, tech is not a monolith. It's not sort of a singular place where everyone is technical. You know, my background was in political theory and then a graduate degree in international relations. You know, at one point I got mildly pragmatic and did an MBA, but <laughs> to the detriment of my Silicon Valley credibility, I graduated and I didn't drop out. Um, but, you know, <laughs> if you look around Silicon Valley, there's so many, uh, so many people, you mentioned Stuart Butterfield uh, at Slack, you know, the founder of Slack. Um, he was a philosopher both undergrad and grad school. Um, if you look at Reed Hoffman, who founded LinkedIn, he was also a philosopher from graduate school. Undergraduate, he studied linguistics and and and, uh, and, and logic and a little bit of computer science, but not not a lot. And uh, you know, you look around Susan Wojcicki, who runs YouTube. She was a history and literature major. Uh, Carly Fiorina, who ran HP. She was a medieval history major. Um, Steve Case, who founded AOL, was a history major at Williams. Um, you know, Parker Harris, who founded Salesforce with Mark Benioff, he was an English major from Middlebury. Um, so you just go down the list and they're, they're incredible um, founders and, and leaders, you know, across, across the board. Um, even at big, you know, data science companies like Palantir, the CEO, his name is Alex Karp, and he has a PhD in, in neoclassical social theory. So he's really kind of a sociologist. Um, so, so really, you know, the leaders of these companies are almost uniformly non-technical. Actually, the outliers in some ways are, you know, the, the, the Larry Pages and the, the Elon Musks, um, you know, really uh, so many others are, are actually the, the leaders that can, can sort of communicate well and have these collaboration skills, have some of the softer skills. Um, again, you know, they have the, uh, the ability to converse with technology and, and they're not intimidated by technology. Um, so I think as long as you can break the ice and sort of um, learn enough that, that it's not intimidating to you, you know, if you go through a basic process where you, you, you download a, a developer environment and you sort of see code and you're not intimidated to see code, it actually becomes like a foreign language. You know, if you're really good at learning French or Italian, chances are you'd probably be pretty good at learning, uh, you know, CSS or HTML or JavaScript. Um, it's just another language. And so I think thinking in those terms um, can be really empowering. Um, so, so for you know, for somebody 25 to 35, um, what I would say is uh, stay, you know, stay true to your passions. Kind of have a broad uh, perspective on on what you love, because so much about I think career advancement is also what you share with with leaders at the company that are things outside of work. You know, I think having a passion for for literature, for example, and having a commonality with 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 a leader at your company where they they really respect your your intellect and your opinion, um, those can be things that advance your career. You know, equally with uh, an ability to sort of master data science or something like that. So I, I wouldn't discount those skills because I think that in many ways. Those are the, um, you know, at Google, there's, there's this concept of, of being googly, and it's kind of a funny hiring term. Um, but when, you know, you go through an interview or, you know, for a long time I was, I was leading interviews at, at Google, and, you know, at the end of the, the interview you say, well, that person is very qualified. They, you know, they, they studied all the right things. They, uh, they checked all the right boxes. But they didn't have this sort of je ne sais quoi. They didn't have this googliness and you say well what the heck is googly and really it was sort of the airport test or you know the the smell test of well if i had to sit all day with this person 
um, you know, in, in JFK Airport, which I'd rather rather not sit with anybody in JFK Airport all day. <laughs> you know, would this be a, would this be a palatable experience? And, and will we have a lot to talk about? Does this person have curiosity and depth and, and, you know, sort of authenticity? And I think if you can sort of communicate those things, and those are the things that we learn so well in, in, in liberal arts um, type backgrounds, where you know maybe you've got the ability to talk a little bit about politics or economics, or the, the ability to have an opinion about you know behavioral economics or psychology. Um, you know you, you you sort of are widely read and and have uh, have sort of convictions about what you believe. Um, I think those are those are the things as well that that equally contribute, especially to a company like Google, where you know we had this whole idea of, of being googly. Um, and and oftentimes it was something that was an avocation, not just a vocational thing. So it was you had biked across America, or you you know loved to do long distance swimming, or it could be any number of things. You know you like to uh, you like to weave, and you had you know weaved a whole blanket or something. It, it could be you know any number of things that just demonstrated authenticity and passion. Um, so so you know kind of long winded answer to your question, but I think staying true to who you are. And upskilling enough to not be intimidated by the data, not be intimidated by the tech, um, to be able to communicate to a, a boss or a manager, hey, you know, I can take on that project because I've got the basic skills and, you know, you've, you've got the confidence to communicate. And, you know, those are really the, the important drivers, I think. Now, you, you know you're kind of uh, breaking um – you know, some, some work rules right now, because, uh, if we talked to a baby boomer right now, or even a Gen Xer, right. They would say, are you kidding me? When I grew up, you didn't talk about anything but work. And all we did was talk about work 14 to 16 hours a day. You didn't go into an interview talking about the things that you like to do outside of work. Cause it sounded like you're actually not passionate about the job that you're applying for. So it, you're definitely breaking what I would call some of the uh, uh, unwritten rules, right, <laughs> of the hiring process. And, it, and and obviously with a company like Google, who is typically uh, trying to be at the forefront of how they hire, uh, not who they hire. Um, that is definitely a, a, a different way of, of hiring people in, in today's market when you would consider that a lot of times many people are afraid to even talk about what they do outside of work. Because they don't want to sound like they're, you know, not really interested in the job or they have other aspirations, you know, that and that sometimes can be taken as a bad thing. Right. Um, because, you know, if I like to quilt <laughs> and that's something that I bring up, well, it sounds like you want to do quilting more than you actually want to, you know, build out this database. Um, so it's a it's a it's a very fascinating uh, time that we live in when probably just 10 or 15 years ago, this would not be a part of your interview process. Um, so yeah, <laughs> and, and to clarify, you know, for, for me, my uh, I've got a West Coast, I probably a West Coast mentality of, of my data points of, of companies that I've worked with, you know, are, are, are the Googles and the Facebooks and the startup world. Um, so I agree, you know, if you're if you're uh, in a buttoned up shop, you know, at Morgan Stanley or something. Um, it's probably a very different environment. And so, you know, I, I think take, take my perspective with a grain of salt as an N of one, but I, I would say that, um, you know, the, uh, not, not to be intimidated by management and really sort of if you, you know, if this maybe again uh, to, to, the, to the millennial audience, you know, if you've got an idea, um, 
if you've got an idea that you're that you're passionate about, you know, you can sort of use technology and, and use some of these these new tools almost to, to incubate or beta test uh, your idea. And so, you know, if you're looking to gain some of the the new skills, for example, um, and you have an idea about a way data should be visualized at work or something like that, um, you know, use use that idea to start learning some of the skills of how would you put this together. You know, could you use Sketch, for example, the design tool? Could you learn from Sketch? to create what a front end would look like? Could you create a wireframe for what the product would look like? You know, can you use something like uh, Framer or InVision, which are two you know, free or, or cheap tools where you can actually export a sketch file and make a clickable prototype and you could put it on an iPad. You know, so if you're, if you're thinking about, okay, you know, how do I impress my, my boss um, and show them that I'm serious about building this data platform? Well, you know, one way is to um, not just build the data platform, but use some of these new tools, new skills, um, and really wow them by, uh, you know, if you go above and beyond, you not only gain the technical skills, you not only gain some of these skills uh, and new tools, but you're going to, you know, completely, uh, you know, shatter, shatter their perspective on what you can do because uh, you've already done it. And so I think, you know, the accessibility of some of these tools, think of them as your way to show off in addition to your way to gain those technical skills and, and gain some of those skills. Um, but I would say, you know, going to some of the people that you mentioned at the beginning uh, of the introduction, uh, like Jessica Carbino, um, you know, she's a sociologist uh, with a background PhD in sociology from UCLA. Um, you would think, well, she's probably stuck in the ivory tower somewhere, you know, writing uh, long papers to, to get, you know, into publications. On the contrary, you know, she actually got a job as the in-house sociologist at Tinder, and her job is to analyze these billions and billions of data points of every swipe left and right, um, every aspect of what's in a photo, if, if somebody's wearing makeup, if a guy is shaven or unshaven, um, all these different characteristics that what she would call, you know, lead to the thin slicing or, or how people make really split reactive decisions to certain wow. very small things. Interesting. And so what's is, uh, you know, for her as a sociologist, that one of the most exciting places that she could apply sociology in practice was actually at a tech company. And so, um, you know, to kind of think outside the box, if you, if you have one of these skills and you say, well, I've got to go do X. Um, in fact, I think regardless of what your skill set is, there, there is a place for you, you know, in this sort of uh, tech, techie first world, and it's not all tech. And so we still need those sociologists. We still need those anthropologists. Um, you know, we need all these different people like, like Jessica who aren't intimidated by the data. She's not intimidated by working for a tech company. Um, but at the same time, she's purely, you know, a sociologist. That's, that's her job. Interesting. That's very interesting. So you're telling me then, Scott, that I can have a liberal arts degree and I could still be a, a, an important part of a company. This is great. So <laughs> this is a this is a really good thing. So a couple of things I want to I want to explore in your book. <clears throat> you talk about data. And we all know that data is for the last, what, several years now has been the talk of the town. What do we do with all of this data? It's becoming more data mining is a huge idea. Um, but in one of the things that you do discuss, you talk about um, mitigating the bias in a lot of our data. And and I know that, you know, for, for some of our audiences is like, well, what do we do with this? This is going to speak probably more to your leadership and executives who, who, who are trying to figure out what to do with a lot of the data that they have. Um but you talk about a very interesting subject that I think it gets talked about a little, but I think your perspective is pretty interesting throughout the book. You talk about mitigating the bias in data. 
and you you talk about the context to what people are building. Talk a little bit about that. And 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 what was your? I guess what are you ultimately trying to get people to think about? Um, because we're all collecting data. I mean that that's yeah, that's almost you know it's almost like breathing now for a company uh, that we're collecting on our customers, we're collecting on our employees, we're collecting it on the you know the uh, the emerging market you know or you know potential customers. Uh, we're collecting it in every single click swipe and as you mentioned you know everything that we're doing. Talk share a little bit about where you're going with that in the book and and why that's such such an important thing for for leadership to think about in today's world. Yeah, sure. So I you know I think we've. Uh, we've been on this this long sort of spectrum has has, has gone. It, it's not a new idea. This idea of, of data and big data and even bigger data, and uh, you know, it's been sort of evolving for for a long time. But even if you go back to sort of even back to Plato and back to Sir Francis Bacon and back you know hundreds of years, um, people had this notion that with more and more information, suddenly we would just have knowledge. Knowledge would appear. And uh, there was a great article in 2008 that was written by Chris Anderson, who was the, the editor of Wired magazine. And the article was titled, uh, you know, The End of the Scientific Method. And he was basically arguing in some, some way, shape, or form that with more data, we would no longer have to ask these big questions. We would no longer have to ask questions of data because we would have so much of it, we would just have answers. And... Um, what we've what we've seen, it, you know, increasingly is that data is reflective of how it's collected. It's reflective of a number of choices in design, a number of choices in um, sort of who chooses to to provide the data. So, for example, um, one example I give in the book is is around predictive policing. And predictive policing is something that you would think, okay, this is this is a good idea. We've got you know beacons on on cop cars, and we can tell when when and where a cop car is deployed. Um, how can we um, how can we use that to you know better forecast where a police officer should be at any given hour of the day? Um, well, that's great, you know, in, in many ways. But on the other side, um, the reason we have this data is because it's based on you know crime data, and crime data is based on re- reported crime data. And reported crime, uh, you know, if you go talk to a, a sociologist or you talk to a social worker, or you talk to somebody that spent their life in, in law enforcement. They'll tell you, well, you know, reported crime data is actually reflective of a number of, of biases around fear and trust and community. Some communities over-report crimes, some communities under-report crimes. Some types of crimes are chronically under-reported because they're embarrassing or because somebody has a bunch of unpaid parking tickets or any number of reasons why somebody may choose to report or not report crime. And so then if you pump that through an algorithm that you assume to be objective, it's written by you know, some coders, but it's been kind of pumped into ones and zeros, and suddenly it becomes this magical uh, formula for, you know, el- eliminating bias. Um, that's, that's false, you know, and so it's, it's reflective of not just the bias in the collection of the data, but the bias of, you know, the individuals and the sensitivities and how they code the algorithm. So really, you know, when we, when we have, you know, more and more big data, I think what's important for leadership and for management are to ask the questions. You know, maybe you don't need to have the answers, but I think ask the questions of, okay, well, how is this data collected? Are there things with the design of, of the system? For example, if we're getting data on clicks or swipes, um, let's look at the, the product roadmap. Have we A-B tested different ways of putting these buttons there? You know, maybe there is an inherent bias in why people are clicking on one thing versus the other because the button is really prominent or any number of other factors. And so I think to sort of 
peel back the onion and ask these important questions around behavioral design, product design. Um, those are those are things that uh, you may see uh, evidence in the data that would tell one story, but the the story is not reflective of of the whole thing. And so, you know, I think where I was going in in the book with with that conversation is. Uh, you know, including various perspectives and teams uh, to really build out sort of composite teams of of not just technical people, not just you know non-technical people, um, but really sort of build and blend your teams and your perspectives, and maintain an openness to you know maybe provide a, a window of uh, of brainstorming within a session where you say, are we thinking about all of the the white space, not just what the data says, but what's not in the data. And uh, a really interesting uh, other story that I'll tell very quickly is I, I went to the Navy War College, which is up in Newport, Rhode Island. And the War College is where they do war gaming. And so they'll put together teams where uh, they'll have a red team and a, and a blue team. And the red team is sort of the, the, uh, the opposition team that's pretending to be you know, a foreign, a foreign uh, aggressor or something like that. And what they'll do is they'll run these iterative games where they'll play out a scenario, whether it's in the South China Sea or in North Korea or in, in Syria, and they'll they'll play out this whole scene, but they'll not just look for what happens in the game, they'll look for what doesn't happen in the game. So they actually look at this space and they say, why didn't that happen? We would have thought that you would have, you know, attacked here or gone to battle there or, you know, done X, Y, or Z. And instead, you guys chose not to do that. So what was the calculus? What was the rationale behind that? So I think you know, looking at the negative space in what's not in the data is as important as, as what's in the data. Interesting. And so do you think that from a, a bias perspective, do you think that even all the way bubbles up to um, uh, the person, you know, how people are, are – uh, viewed because i can imagine if uh, if we have bias throughout the data that we're just using you know whether it's uh you know uh, something very technical but it's being built by people and it's also being built on the ideas of the behaviors of people right do you think that also plays into how we're viewing people that might lead to false assumptions and false ideas yeah, I mean, these are, these are great questions. And so whether it's, uh, you know, I'll get to a couple other people that you mentioned in the introduction. One is uh, Melissa Chefkin, uh, who is a PhD uh, anthropologist actually from Rice University. And she, she's working at Nissan. And her job at Nissan is to ask these very questions. How should, in, in the self-driving autonomous vehicle world, you know, when you come to a stop sign and you have a mixed uh, use environment where you've got, maybe some autonomous or semi-autonomous vehicles. You've got some um, normal vehicles that are, that are still kind of legacy vehicles on the road because this capital stock turnover is going to take many decades for cars, you know, to, to go off the road and for every car to become, you know, a fancy new Prius or a fancy new Tesla or whatever it might be. Um, and so in this mixed environment, you have this world where you've got humans communicating with machines and you've got, you know, skateboarders giving head nods uh, to, to a Nissan car. How does the Nissan car interpret that? Is the skateboarder going to stop or not stop? Um, so, so Melissa's role is really to do kind of ethnographic and, and anthropological research around different forms of communication, different communities. Um, how does she 
how does she provide this uh, human input in, in information to the, the technical teams that are building these algorithms? You know, when should they have the right um, sensitivities to move forward across the stop sign threshold, or when does the car stay put? Um, you know, these are all very real questions that have you know ethical considerations. They have uh, sociological and anthropological considerations. Um, actually, there was a report by uh, a senior partner at, at McKinsey where he said, in the self-driving car world, the questions are far more anthropological and, and ethical than they are technical these days. And so uh, it's a really interesting point of inflection where I think we've got the ability to build some of these things, but from a regulatory standpoint, from an ethical standpoint, from you know uh, these other these other subjects, these are actually the skills that these companies like Nissan are looking to to bake into into their programs. Um, so you know, so Melissa is a, a great example of somebody with you know completely fuzzy background, um, but you know not intimidated by technology, uh, kind of like Jessica Carbino, uh, what saw this really exciting uh, opportunity to to go into. Uh, into tech at the helm of one of the most you know innovative sectors within technology. Okay, I don't know about you, but um, I find this type of stuff very fascinating. It's a it's a joy for me to uh, to be able to bring you guys into interviews that I'm uh, conducting uh, all the time. And so Scott is an incredible individual. Um, his background is is interesting, and so that's why I know when you were listening to this interview today, you're going, "Wow, that's a nugget. That's something I hadn't considered or thought about." And so. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's show. Now, here's what I would like for you to do. Let's keep this conversation going. As you know, it will be in two days that I will drop part two of this interview right here on High Level Wisdom for New Generation Leaders. Until then, I want you to share this information. Let's have a conversation. Let's get involved. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you thought about. Tell me what stood out to you. You can simply find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at High Level Wisdom. Or you can go to our website, www.highlevelwisdom.com. Let's have a conversation. I want to hear what's standing out to you. Uh, what things are you going to take away, not only in your career, but even in your personal life? Well, until I see you in two days, I hope that everything you do from your work to your personal life and every place that you go, if you're going to do it, do it at a high level. I look forward to seeing you in two days. Take care. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, 
we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.